Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Welcome back to what I'm sure will be yet another illuminating and helpful conversation with Dr. James Emery White. Today's chat was prompted by a recent Gallup poll. Uh, it captured the confidence, or really lack thereof, that our society has for some of the some of this nation's leading professions. Nurses, unsurprisingly, remain trusted among society, with 78% of adults believing that nurses hold to honest and ethical standards. Other high-ranking professionals included engineers and dentists, medical doctors, pharmacists, now, on the opposite side of the spectrum were professions that I'd say usually fit the traditional stereotype. Um, you've got politicians here, cars, salespeople, those who work in advertising. In fact, compared to the 78% of confidence that were garnered for nurses, these professions had ratings in the single digits. Okay, so far, I'm sure no one is shocked. But what was surprising was that clergy are not only not among the top tier of professions marked by honesty and ethics, but instead dropped to a low 32%. Jim, as a pastor, what was your gut response when you read that? Well, first, let's let the weight of that survey sink in. I think it needs to. Uh, In 2019, 40% felt clergy were honest and ethical. Not exactly a high mark, but a 40%. As you noted, in 2023, which is when this was taken, but the results are just coming out now, uh, that had dropped to 32%. The lowest it's ever been charted in the history of charting this kind of thing in the United States. We just can't let that slide by because it means that less than a third of all Americans consider clergy to be honest and ethical. Less than a third. Uh, I suppose you could take heart, what you mentioned, that we're we're still trusting better than politicians and lawyers and journalists, but that's kind of a hollow victory. Um, This is concerning on any number of fronts, not least of which is, I mean, the basic biblical qualification of of church leadership, that people outside the church think well of you uh, Mm -hmm. and speak well of you. I mean, that, we, we have a lot of the lists of qualifications of pastors. We forget that one in First Timothy where it says outsiders should speak well of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a biblical admonition that you have in um, uh, First Peter that is very, very, very clear that you need to be very careful to live how you're living so that if an accusation is brought to you, if someone is suspicious, if someone does accuse you of wrong, it's overwhelmed by the record of your honorable behavior and that your honorable behavior, you know, is is your Teflon because it, it doesn't stick because it was a false accusation. So in other words, the very things that the Bible says should disqualify someone from serving as a church leader is the very thing that the majority of Americans believe to be true of them. My response to your question is that I was, I was heartsick. I just was heartsick about it, um, but not surprised our, our news feeds are just filled with stories about the moral failings of church leaders and toxic church cultures and systemic patterns of, of covering up child abuse or sexual abuse, the abuse of power uh, in authority, greed, 
financial malfeasance and scandal, uh, narcissism cut loose among leaders, entrenched legalism, racism, bigotry, misogyny, uh, on and on it goes. Churches becoming deeply partisan and aligning themselves with one political party or another. So, so when we're acting this way, I'm not surprised, but I'm still heartsick because it it not only blunts the edge of the church and the message we're trying to proclaim, it blunts the evangelistic edge of the church, but it deeply grieves our Lord. It deeply grieves him. Mm. Well, something I found interesting, though, was, I mean, certainly I co-sign everything that you just mentioned, but it wasn't just clergy who dropped um, percentage points. Actually, Almost every profession that was polled did. In other words, do we truly believe that these professions have lowered their bars of honesty and ethics, or have we just simply grown more distrustful of people and institutions in general? What do you yes. think? Yes. Another one of my famous yeses. No. <laughs> Both are true. Huh. Uh, um, Professions have seemed to race to the bottom of ethics, and people have grown more distrustful. So both. It's a actually it's a perfect storm of of three things at least coming together. Um, you have you have people in general growing more suspicious. You have people doing the very things people are suspicious about, and then widespread institutional distrust as a whole on the rise. So all three coming together. And then you throw in that it's all fueled by social media, uh, which does several things to fan the flame. I mean, it, 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 you have the widespread, almost instantaneous dissemination of bad behavior. So uh, which can be a good thing. So it's not hushed up or, or thrown under the or, you know, put under the rug, swept under the rug, but widespread dissemination, the ability for accusations, true or untrue, to be made, often recklessly, uh, and finally, suspicion itself to be encouraged through not only, you know, good information, but also misinformation and disinformation. As we've talked about here before, the, the real nature of our cultural crisis, and, and I, I can't come back to this enough, is a crisis of authority. Uh, there's a lack of trust, which leads to a crisis in terms of authority. Um, even after a culture, and the United States has, rejected transcendent truth, has rejected moral authority rooted in a creator God, we still had a season where we kind of ran on fumes, where a sense of, of truth and authority and moral order continued, only it wasn't because we believed in a transcendent God, but it was because it was upheld through cultural institutions that had been established. Many of those cultural institutions, based on our belief in a transcendent God and that truth existed, but still, after the airbrush got out, these institutions remained and became kind of our authority. Not God anymore, but these institutions became our authority. So uh, schools and government and professions and, 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 and media and, and maintained social order through authority and, and a certain amount of moral trust. And um, while there was still a sense of trust in those institutions, even if we no longer had a belief in a transcendent God who was the basis of all authority, there, there was a sense of morality, cultural morality, you know, pervading things. Chaos was avoided, if you will. But it was very institutional in nature. 
not spiritual. It was it was it was it was trust and it was authority and cultural institutions that let culture move forward with a seeming lack of chaos, as if we really did have moral order, not anarchy. But then you just had erupt distrust of institutions, followed by social media. Uh, misinformation, which is false information that people sincerely believe, but they still spread. It's still not correct. And then disinformation, which is deliberate deception. Uh, it just took away the last vestiges of any kind of social glue holding us together in terms of trust in institutions. So not only have we uh, jettisoned God and that transcendent, but also we have a loss of the institutional and societal glue that used to hold us together in terms of trust and morality. So we now have nothing. You know, it's, it's akin to the old story of the emperor's new clothes. He's, you know, naked and now only now seeing it. Um, and into this, you have the moral failures that seem to just populate every news cycle. And so you just have this perfect cultural storm of a, of a, just a breakdown of trust across the board. Mm, yeah. Well, let's zero in on, on clergy just a moment, because as you mentioned, it is incredibly tragic to hear that those who are called, I mean, all Christians are, but specifically pastors of being lights, you know, to to a society are increasingly being viewed as less and less ethical. Like, even if we have grown more trust, distrusting as a society, what do you think clergy have to own about how we've contributed to that? A lot. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the headline is that we have distanced ourselves greatly from and, and and I I would say this is what the church needs to own. Mm-hmm. We have greatly distanced ourselves from the biblical qualifications of church leadership. I mean, we just need to say that we have become worldly, and we value charisma over character. Um, we value skill sets over spiritual spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we value magnetism over maturity. Uh, public displays over depth or discipline. Too many people um, enter ministry, love crowds, but don't like people. I mean, uh, they, they seek fame. They have no interest in humility. Uh, they crave power instead of servanthood. They want to be influencers with all that comes with it, but they don't want, um, you know, to be... Um, themselves influenced. Uh, Spiritual authority is often abused because it's devoid of spiritual authenticity. If you don't have spiritual authenticity, you're not going to be a healthy practitioner of spiritual authority. We just have got to own that. Now let's chase that a little bit more. First, let's talk about the celebration of of ability to such a radical degree that it trumps character. Um, I mean, I know of church planning agencies and some of them have repented of it and rightfully so, but they, they really did. They, they looked at, they looked at talent over character. They, they looked at speaking ability over, over maturity. But much of this is fueled by the internet, which, which is, which I'm far from the first to note gives credit to verbal ability and visual appeal above all else. Uh, Sadly, the Christian community just has no discernment. It doesn't seem to have maturity itself. It just instantly elevates someone who looks good, is hip, is a preacher with the right sneakers. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Is <laughs> gifted with rhetorical skill. Um, you know what we what we don't seem to value, or at least care about on the front end, is character. 
As a result, we will elevate and we will celebrate those with ability without realizing that in so doing, we are letting them build a ministry on sand, you know, to use the sand and rock uh, that Jesus brought up. And, and, and then, and those surrounding these leaders will often turn a blind eye to character issues because they're afraid of undermining what God appears to be doing through that individual. Hmm. So they are often enabled by their inner circle as well. I think another thing that we can drill deep on is the complete eradication of accountability. I, 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 I know that when I bring this up, sometimes I sound like a cranky old man, but I, 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 I'm, I'm aghast at, at the lack of accountability. It is now fashionable for church planters that, that like, it's almost like they're, they're taught. And I think they are, they are being taught. They're being trained. They're being told, set your church up structurally to remove any and all governance, hmm. any non-staff governance, in any any anything that would be an outside accountability or an inside accountability, uh, and and uh, well, who sets your salary? We'll just get a bunch of your friends. You know, four or five pastors of big churches from other cities. Let them set your salary, and then and then uh, and then we'll. What else do I need to do structurally? Well, make sure you get everybody to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Get everybody on staff and all your volunteers to sign an NDA. And I, I just, I, I'm I'm stunned. I mean, to a degree, I get the sentiment because I have long argued that the church needs to turn loose the gift of leadership. Hmm. Uh, the vast majority of churches are hamstrung by structures that stifle the leadership gift. And, there's, and I would be the first to say that accountability in many settings has become a euphemism for control. And that's not good. There are some who want to strip religious leaders of any authority only to assume it for themselves. Hmm. That's not a solution. Hmm. A lot of people say, well, we just need accountability. What, what you've done, you've just put absolute authority in someone else's hands. So now it's not a pastor, but it's a group of three elders or it's not, you know, a pastor, but it's majority rule vote or whatever. I mean, you, you, you're just you're moving that authority around, but you're not solving the way it can be abused. But having said that, what I see happening now in terms of an eradication of appropriate accountability is just frightening to me. Rather than unleashing the leadership gift, these structures seem more intent on providing the cover for bad behavior. I can't stress this enough. Many church structures, or more to the point, the lack thereof, become a breeding ground for unchecked immorality and ongoing abuse. I think another thing that we can say is that in ministry, another dynamic, and you and I've talked about this. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about it in a podcast, but I know we've talked about it as staff and, off, and offline and interpersonally, is that in ministry, you're constantly being put on a spiritual pedestal and you're treated as if you're the fourth member of the Trinity. In truth, those who follow you have no idea whether you've spent any time alone with God in reflection and prayer, much less repentance over the last six weeks or even six months. They don't know what you're viewing online. Uh, they don't know whether you treat your wife with kindness and dignity uh, or your spouse. They, they just afford you a high level of spirituality. And here's where it gets really toxic is that you can begin to bask in that spiritual adulation, let your self-esteem be feasting off of it and start to believe your own press reports. Mm -hmm. 
And soon the estimation of others about your spiritual life becomes your own self-assessment when you look in the mirror. This is why most train wrecks in ministry are not as sudden or out of the blue as they seem. Mm -hmm. uh, most leaders who end up in a moral ditch have been veering off the road for some time. They're, they're, their empty spiritual life simply became manifest or caught up with them or took its toll or became more public. And that's another thing that's about this whole the way that these churches are structured. A lot of these blow ups, then you you get into there and like, well, the staff all knew. Well, he's been berating us or screaming at us or we saw what he was doing with women or money or what, you know, swearing and losing anger issues and all that. But we have NDAs. We can't say anything. Uh, or they were so entrenched, we knew our job depended on not being able to say anything. There was no accountability for that kind of loose, erratic behavior and a loose kin. So, and, and added to all this, <laughs> let me get all this off my chest. Added to all this is, is the sense of entitlement that I, I've seen in some leaders to pursue a shadow life that just comes with their high estimation of spirituality or import. I mean, literally. Some of these well-known cases of breakdown, the person said, well, I just deserve this. This For all I do for God, I deserve to be able to pursue this behavior. And, um, and, and all of this is just, you know, you know, it, it, it all sounds so toxic because ministry can be toxic. Any kind of leadership can be, but ministry leadership particularly. But, but I got a five, I got a last 5%. And before I share this last 5%, let me begin by saying that I, I, I hope I'm saying this with a healthy sense of humility um, because I'm only too aware of the sin in my own life. And I've, I've, I've often written that one of the worst things that you can ever say is, oh, I would never commit that sin. That's pride. And we all know what happens following a pride, a fall. And this is why so many leaders, myself included, have often responded to leadership falls with, and we mean it in a sense of humility there, but by the grace of God go I. And of course that's often true, but maybe this is a perspective I'm getting with age. Um, and, and the danger sometimes in saying that. So let me say something that maybe only an older person can say, looking back on a lot of life at 62. Um, instead of responding to another leader's fall with, well, there, but both go there, but by the grace of God, go I. I'm increasingly feeling, particularly when it comes to the deeply entrenched and egregious shadow lives being revealed, uh, of wanting to say, no, no. That is not a place that by the grace of God, I go. I, I, I would not molest a child. I, I would not intentionally cultivate women for sexual ends. I would not solicit naked photos from women who attend my conferences. I wouldn't set up a private apartment just for sexual encounters. I wouldn't traffic women from other countries to meet my sexual desires, much less invoke the name of Jesus to get them to remain quiet. I, I, I would not give in to pride and anger to such a degree that I would curse and swear and threaten and berate and physically attack and assault someone on our staff. Yes, I have my sin. <laughs> uh, but my goodness, 
uh, I, I can with every fiber of my being say no there, but by the grace of God, I would not go. Hmm. Uh, there are some things that basic character and a relationship with the living God through Jesus inhibits within me. Uh, the sense of conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit, the foundational fear of God. Uh, these are too real for some things to even be contemplated, much less pursued. Now, I say that, and, and let me let me unpack this so that this is not misunderstood. I say that because a simple there but by the grace of God go I response to deeply entrenched and purposely pursued shadow lives of extreme and severe sin over long periods of time that's habitual and 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 unrepentant over decades is so unhealthy for the body of Christ because it waters down the offense. It, 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 it mutes the reaction. Instead, such things have to be met with a horror and, and a repulsion, not a sense of identification. Mm -hmm. uh, that trivializes it and even, dare as I say it, normalizes it. Yeah. Well, that's just what all Christians have to suffer. And, that, and he just, bless his heart, he just had a bad day and gave in. Like any of us could on any given moment. Whoa. Uh, we, we must be as aghast at these things as Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians of his shock and horror of a scandalous sex affair within that church. They were all saying there, but by the grace of God, go I. They were all meeting it with a yawn. And Paul said, what is wrong with you? He wrote about how it was something that wouldn't even be tolerated by those outside of the church. And that's one of the things really plugging us to today is that some of the things erupting now that even the outside world is saying, well, even we wouldn't do that. <laughs> we wouldn't cover that up at IBM. You're covering that up with you guys. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, in, in the case, as you know, with Paul writing Corinth, it was a man sleeping with his stepmother. Mm -hmm. and, and he writes of his shock that it wasn't even phasing them. Mm -hmm. And he wrote to them, and you can find this in, in the, the fifth chapter of, of that first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, instead, he said, your heart should, should be breaking and you should be on your knees in tears over this. So yes, um, I, I must be reminded that I can be tempted by, by sexual sin. Mm -hmm. I can be tempted by any number of sins. And most assuredly, I can fall prey. That's humility 101. And you should have that as part of every days opening quiet time. <laughs> but there's a line between the proclivity any Christ follower has towards sin and a life that has seemingly abandoned even the most foundational attempt at restraint. Mm -hmm. Such abandonment is not part of the Christ life. That's not there, but by the grace of God go I. Like we're all in this together and we're all prone to that. No, that 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 that's an abandonment of the Christ life. Uh, it's not even part of the life of the average person who is not a Christ follower. Uh, so there, so, so <laughs> if I can remember your question, I, I think there, I think there's three or four things here that, 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 uh, you know, there has to be genuine repentance by the church. There has to be a return to basic Christian biblical morality. There has to be a humility that keeps us on our knees. And finally, a fear of God, a fear of God that keeps us on our guard. Hmm. 
I love the way you put that. Yeah, I was thinking, I'm like, there's a big difference between recognizing that I have the potential in my kind of fallen nature of committing XYZ. And then there's a, so because of that, I'm going to work out with fear and trembling every manner of guarding myself and protecting myself against that rather than just, well, I guess this is my nature. I just, I, I couldn't help it. It's like, well, I think that's why it is called working out with fear and trembling. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's a great point. Um, no, I was thinking as I was reading, you know, the results of that poll, I wonder how much of this distrust is just um, is just mental and how much of it is embodied. Like uh, as a pastor yourself, like how much have you ex- actually experienced this distrust? Like how do, how do you see it in your everyday ministry or in the life of our church? Now nah, you're getting personal, which is <laughs> <laughs> fine. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know of any pastor who hasn't experienced this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm deeply grateful that I've experienced it much less than most. Um, but here is what I have found more prevalent than at any other time in what is for me now over four decades of leadership. There is now among some uh, a, just a bias of suspicion. That, that, that's how they, that's their posture toward you. There's just a bias of suspicion. Um almost an adversarial edge, an assumption of the worst. Uh, there is an assumption that there, that there might be or even must be something. Let me, let me give you an example. of, of And, and I've, I've had pastors talk to me about this. Uh, and I think we've talked about this, certainly offline. Christianity Today did a serial podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, which was led by Mark Driscoll. It was, in terms of journalism, masterful, just so well done, so well done, so well researched. Um, And millions listened to this. It was probably the most popular Christian podcast, maybe the most popular Christian podcast that's been made um, in terms of listens, views. Uh, Mars Hill was a church that um, during the 90s was one of the fastest growing, most influential churches in the United States. They were based in Seattle, an area known for their hardcore unchurched, and they were actually reaching them. Uh, it was a day when very few churches were reaching men. They were reaching men. They had a charismatic leader, very gifted public speaker with a quick wit and a bright mind. Uh, they were one of the first to take advantage of the internet and social media to their advantage, which spread and amplified their influence in ways that no church had, had before or explored, explored before, and then it imploded. Almost overnight, this church died. Hmm. Uh, there were charges of, uh, of financial corruption and plagiarism and the abuse of power and toxic masculinity and uh, unrestrained celebrity culture and more misallocation of funds and misuse of funds. It, you know, uh, it, it was you know uh, artificially making books bestsellers with church money and and just so it was sorted. Hmm. Okay. Listening to it did two things. It showed how this can infiltrate a church to great harm. But it also created a sense among a listener, any listener, myself included, of distrust of almost any and every church and church leader, deserved or not. There was just a sense throughout of what people just didn't know of what was going on behind the scenes, you know, the real story. 
And it made you wonder what you didn't know about your church and what was going on behind the scenes of the life of your leaders. Uh, literally, I was, I was hearing from pastors that one day everything was fine with their church or certain members of their church. And then after listening to that podcast, they were suspect of everything about that leader and their church. Hmm. And so while appropriate accountability should always be welcomed, the danger is that one bad apple or a lot of bad apples can make people assume the worst and see things that aren't really there and be suspicious where they don't need to be suspicious. And so suddenly any church that um, that was large, a pastor with good speaking skills or who was a strong leader who might have even written a book or two, was they were all painted with the same brush. Uh, that hurt a lot of good men and women, hmm. a lot of good men and women who just didn't deserve it. But then I also saw it trickling down to every church of every size with every kind of leader who didn't deserve it. Hmm. Um, I mean, yes, you can look at any life and see sin and failure and fault. But, you know, but we're not talking about nitpicking the lint off of someone's soul. We're talking about these wide kind of uh, biases of suspicion that were just sweeping. So I think every pastor today uh, has to operate with an understanding that there may be a sense of being suspect, deservedly or not. Hmm. Let me just interject a quick, just for a point of clarification, because you mentioned earlier that, but but for some, they like you mentioned, like the CU as the fourth member of the Trinity. Is that like, are both of those things true within each person? Like they could have this spirit of distrust towards you and still Excellent hold question. You know, my friends in New Zealand call it the tall poppy syndrome. And, and it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I, re and uh, I remember when I first did a speaking tour through New Zealand, and uh, if anyone's listening, I would love to do that again. No, but I've, I've actually had a chance to be in New Zealand a few times. And, um, and I remember that I, the one guy said, yeah, that's just the New Zealand tall poppy syndrome. They were talking about an attitude toward a particular leader. And I said, okay, you lost me on that. Um, mm -hmm. What do you mean? And this, this idea of, People love to see a poppy grow tall and they celebrate that. And then they also love to cut it down. Interesting. And we have that in America too. We mm -hmm. build people up and then we knock them down and we get joy and pleasure both ways. Hmm. Thank you for, yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Now I had asked my earlier set of question about, you know, who's really at fault. Is it society that we're distrusting or is it these actual professionals becoming less ethical? Because I, for me, it helps me kind of to understand where where is the pathway forward here? So um, like, where does the solution need to take place? So if it is both us and them, if it's to your response to your yes to both. So let's start with the them, like with with clergy. Do you think it is possible for, for pastors to regain society's trust? And if so, how? Yeah, well, we got to accept that we live in a post-Christian world. I mean, we've just got to own that. We're behind enemy lines. This is not you know, we just need to get that in our heads. That means that a positive view of church leaders can't be assumed. A negative view must be assumed. Uh, if anything, as Gallup's poll obviously showed, it's a negative view that's dominant. This means that church leaders must not demand trust. Uh, you know, I think that's actually kind of a scary thing. Trust me, trust me. Mm -hmm. um, we can't demand trust. We have to earn it. In fact, Henry Cloud just came out with a book on trust that we can put in the show notes. Um, where he says, when you hear just trust me, any leader that says, just trust me, he says, that should come with sirens, flashing lights, and warning signs. Mm. I don't know that I disagree. Mm. Um, 
Too many leaders, when thinking of cultivating their image, think of designer clothes and glam shots and social media likes. They need to think of clothing themselves with righteousness. Um, you know, Cloud writes that trust is the fuel of all life, and it really is. It's important to understand its essentials, to grow in trust, and when needed, to heal from broken trust. This is true for all of us. But for those in positions of church leadership, the goal is much more foundational. For goodness sakes, just start being trustworthy. It's, it's, it's not complicated. So I don't, I don't ask for trust. Uh, I certainly don't assume trust. Instead, I know, even after all these years, and I, I have one of the rare opportunities where I've led the same church for over 30 years, be 32 years this, this year, I still have to continually earn trust. I mean, I, yes, I've got a lot of trust credits in the bank. After 32 years, you've, you know, you've proven certain things that you can be trustworthy on. And so, yes, I've got maybe more trust than a lot of pastors do because of that. But, um, but I would encourage pastors not to resent the fact that they have to keep earning trust. I don't resent it when I feel, when I realize I, I still have to earn trust. It's not guaranteed to me. Um, I have to own it as part of the job. And as part of the culture in which we live and that I'm trying to reach, it's even part of the responsibility of the calling. Scripture makes it very clear that those who lead the church are called to higher standards. That doesn't mean sinless perfection. It does mean, though, that you should live your life in such a way that, again, as Peter wrote in Scripture, you know, be, that, you, that you're living carefully with your unbelieving neighbors. And even if they accuse you of behavior, they'll see your honorable behavior. And that that will be a protection for you, that they may be suspect, but they kind of dig into that and they realize there's nothing there because you have led a life of of basic integrity. Hmm. Related to that response, I'm also thinking about just Christians in general who are serving in some of some in other prisons professions, particularly those that were at the bottom of the pole, like what pastoral word might you want to give those? Because it's not just a distress towards clergy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's towards Christians in general. So that seems like a unique opportunity or unique challenge in gaining trust. Anyone in public life should follow these standards that we're talking about and follow these ideals that we're talking about and, and, and take heart. Though suspicion travels hard and fast, Honest and integrity, integrity not only honesty and integrity not only protects you, but will in the end prevail. They will in the end prevail. Uh, but I would also add that when you do make mistakes, and you will, um, when you do fail in any trust, oh my goodness, own it. Don't deny it or cover it up. That is doing so much harm right now. I'm thinking of the way so many have tried to cover up instances of sexual abuse, for example. Um, you know, trying so hard to protect their reputation or the reputation of the organization. And I don't care whether you're a church, I don't care whether you're a business, I don't, that doesn't protect it. Mm -hmm. Transparency does. Mm. And yet I still wonder if, if any additional effort by clergy and Christians, if it would even be enough considering that the problem, as I mentioned earlier, also lies with us and our just growing distrust of people. So can you talk a moment to close about what it would take for, for us as a society to regain a hopeful and more distressing attitude towards others? Or am I just living in la la la? No, no, no. And, and I, think we need to, I think we need to start off, I, let me start off by answering that by saying that I think that when there's legitimate distrust and that distrust has been earned, 
you have every right to act on that distrust. For example, if there's a church that is toxic to its core and unwilling to address that toxicity or repent of it, then it's not being the church. And, and you need to leave it. Find one that is. If, if there's a church that has embraced racist or misogynist or bigoted views, is distorting scripture to support those views, it's not being the church. You need to leave it and you need to find one that is. If there's a church that is systematically covering up the abuse of children or the sexual misconduct or financial misconduct of leadership, then it's not being the church. And you need to leave it and find one that is. If there is a church that is teaching a message contrary, other than the message of Jesus, it, if it's distorting scripture, if it's conveying heresy, then it's not being the church and you need to leave it and find one that is. So all of those are trust situations where it's been broken and you have every right to, you know, uh, react to that brokenness. But make sure, going to the solution side, make sure you're fleeing those kinds of things and not just fleeing the normal brokenness that you find in every church. The rough edges and elbows that come with gathering as a community of sinners to try to do life together. Don't let petty disagreements about decisions or structure become paramount in your thinking. Don't let news of fallen leaders and corrupt cultures and unethical financial dealings make you cynical toward all churches and leaders or suspicious of all leaders in churches. Uh, don't hold up an unrealistic standard of community or leadership that no church or leader could ever meet. I mean, you know, I, I've often said you come spend a day with me and and I guarantee you in some way, shape or form, I'll disappoint you. But, you know, then I always kind of joke. Now, don't get cocky, though, because you'd probably disappoint me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but does that mean we shouldn't be in community together? Well, let's hope not, because sin stained people are all we have to do community with. They're all we have. So if you can't accept people as messy, you'll just go from church to church and community to community and searching for what you know doesn't exist and always bad mouthing the one you came from in a way that sullies that church's reputation. I mean, it's just really kind of pathological and, and not very healthy. Here's what we said about Met from the very beginning or at Met from the very beginning that we believe that loving relationships should permeate every aspect of church life. And we don't just believe that, we try and practice that. I am a jealous defender of the community of this church because I have been as wounded, if not more so than anybody, by the pain that can be inflicted by people on people, particularly within the wider church world. I've seen division and discord and slander and gossip and power plays. I've seen people assume the worst of each other and make accusations and shoot the wounded. And what we have said from day one is not here. Let's draw a line in the sand. Just say, you know, not here. Instead, let's do everything in our power to relate to each other lovingly, truthfully, compassionately, graciously. And when there is conflict or tension, and I notice I said is, not if, when there is, uh, stress or misunderstanding, any of those things, let's tackle it within the context of love. Uh, we won't be equally close to one another. Um, you know, we know that, but we can always take the high road, giving the other person the benefit of the doubt instead of being eager to be suspicious, wounded, or offended. We can be loving in our attitudes and gracious in our hearts and fiercely loyal to each other. I was talking to a pastor just the other day and, you know, I was reminding him as he was telling me some things and asking for some counsel and various things. I was reminding him, I said, you do realize you're, you're, the, the church is a family and you have to teach the church how to be family, how to be functional. 
how to be loving, how to relate to each other, how to resolve conflict. I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, give me an umbrella of grace as I use this analogy. I mean, you're the father, hmm. you're the parent. Um, and so are you raising a family that is functional? You know, we don't talk that way around here. This hmm. is how you deal with conflict. You know, Johnny, you need to go back and say you're sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, Sally, I don't need to hear that about your brother. You need to work that out with your brother. Hmm. And on and on and on it goes. And so I, I think that that's what we're really trying to create, which we can. And that's what marked the early church. I've always loved what uh, the second century church leader Tertullian once observed about what it was that arrested the attention of the pagan community of the early church. And it was, see how they love one another. Mm -hmm. Look at their love. And it's that kind of love that I think we can we can recapture. Hmm. Well, thank you, Jim. Let's leave it there for now. Um, and thank you guys for listening. As always, please take advantage of the show notes if you don't already do that, just so you can go deeper with every topic that we have. Take advantage of um, on the churchandculture.org website where you can submit um, conversation topics for us to tackle. Uh, we're always so appreciative of those. But we'll leave it here for now, and we hope you'll catch us again next week. <laughs>